Good to be with you guys today. My name is Kyle. I serve as lead pastor. So if you're visiting with us today, thank you for being here. I'm glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, we are continuing a series called Happy the Home, which is exploring God's design for families. That title's taken from an old hymn called Happy the Home When God is There. And so that's the, uh, that's the intent, right? We want to we establish homes where God is present. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're just kind of, we've been following the storyline of creation. And so we're going to continue with that today. As you're turning there, I wanted to give you a brief update on uh, Winnie Kate's Kids. Uh, so Winnie Kate's Kids was founded in honor of um, mine and Patricia's daughter who passed last September, so a year ago. And uh, it was founded uh, with the, the gifts that were given in her memory uh, to disciple the nations. And so with those initial gifts, which were uh, somewhere around two Two grand, is that right? Am I remembering right? Okay. Um, we, well, Dustin, for the, from the Disciple of the Nations, uh, there's pastors that we that Disciple of the Nations has been training in Malawi. Dustin's been getting with them, and other missionaries have been helping train these pastors in Malawi uh, for, gosh, about three years now, I guess. It's been a while. And I've had a chance to sit in on those a couple of times. Anyway, uh these pastors have daughters who needed to be able to go to secondary school. Well, secondary school is essentially junior high, high school, but you have to pay for it. Uh, it's, it's really a privilege in Malawi to be able to do this. It's not granted to children like it is here uh, to just be able to go to school. And so it had to be paid for. And so with that initial money, we were able to cover the cost for uh, these four daughters of these different pastors uh, that are being trained uh, to go for their first semester. And so uh, quickly, we were able to then commit to helping the girls finish school <laughs> because of all the funds that had come in. And so uh, one of the girls just finished, um, I forget what it's called. It's, it's the end of secondary school, but it's the final installment of that, the final semester of that. And so she's looking at being able to go to university, which is just another great help. Uh, especially to women in this culture. And so um, so we're looking at uh, being able to pay for that, which I think the Lord has provided the funds to be able to do that. Uh, and so praise the Lord um, that we'll be able to do that, I believe. But also I want to make you aware that um, there was a cholera outbreak uh, recently in which one of the pastors, his niece, lost both her parents to cholera. So she is now in his home and living with them and he was asking on Thursday if it would be possible for Winnie Kate's kids to help send her to secondary school. And I just need you guys to say yes or no to that. Yes. All right. So we're excited uh, to be able to help with that. But there's another issue as well. Uh, Malawi was hit with a cyclone earlier this year. Uh, DTN had come alongside these pastors and had helped uh, provide resources to plant crops. Crops they, they plant normally, but to, to be able to help, in a way that could get them ahead to where they could have bumper crops, crops that they could then sell and make some funds off of. And they were about two weeks away from being able to harvest those crops when the cyclone hit and wiped out everything. Um, and it's been a really devastating time. And so each of these pastors have orphanages within their churches where they're taking care of children. And so the, the food they're raising and preparing and 
growing and harvesting is also used to help take care of people in the church, help take care of children. And so um, Winnie Kate's Kids is also going to come alongside and just help provide food as well. Now you can feed uh, each of these pastors and their churches uh, for about two weeks on about $100 per pastor, I think, if I'm remembering the, the numbers correctly. Um, so really cheap. But Duncan, uh, the kind of the lead guy here, the guy that, that all of this has been operating through over the last three years, and he's been getting these other pastors to come together, and um, he is working on preparing cr crops currently, right? But you can't it's not like going to the grocery store where you prepare a crop and then it's, you know, the next morning you can pick it, uh, you can harvest. So he's having to wait. But so I'm just asking you to pray, pray for Malawi, uh, pray for these pastors there in Malawi, pray for uh, the people under their care, pray that Winnie Kids Kids Disciple of Nations will be able to, uh, to provide funds. If you're interested in being able to help with that, uh, you can go to either discipleofthenations.org or winniekateskids.org and give through those, those links there to help. Uh, do those things. but uh, So I'm coming to you with prayer requests, updates, but also just the ability to praise the Lord that um, Winnie Kate's Kids is already in a place to be able to help, and that's in large part due uh, to the faithful giving of you all uh, just through our church, and that's not counting whatever you give outside of it running through uh, the church accounts, uh, but you've given a little over $22,000 just this year to Winnie Kate's Kids. Winnie Kate's Kids, yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, and the account for Winnie Kate's Kids, which has done a lot already in a year's time, less than a year's time, it, it was founded in October, but um, in a year's time, there's uh, $47,000 sitting in that account currently, which is incredible what the Lord's done. And that's um, that's really without, I mean, very much effort at all on our end. And, and so there's much to do. Uh, there's requests uh, from missionaries through DTN. Uh, currently, there's ways we can, can help in other parts of the world as well. And, and also locally, uh, we're examining things as well. So uh, please continue to pray for Winnie Kate's kids. I thank you for your continued support of it. Um, your love for our family, your love for Winnie, your love for the Lord and, and helping take care of those things. If you've stumbled into this today, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? You can go to those links as well and learn more. Uh, so anyway, let's get into the sermon now. Surely you've had enough time to find Genesis 2 at this point, right? So you're like, no, I got distracted. So Genesis 2, we'll be in verse 21 here in just a moment. But uh, just want to recap a little bit what we've done the last few weeks. So in week one, we looked at how God created us male and female for his own glory. All right. He, he created us male and female that we might bear his image on the earth. He created us in his image, in his likeness, for his glory, male and female. And so we talk just, just a high view of creation there. What does it mean that God created us male and female? We just looked at a few of those things, but largely we were just saying mankind is the crown jewel of creation, and it's meant to bring God the utmost glory, all right? And so uh, we looked at those things. And then, excuse me, as we got into chapter two, that was from chapter one. As we got into chapter two, we looked specifically at how God created man, how he created him from the dust of the ground. He placed him in the garden of Eden and he instructed him to work it and keep it. And so we said that God created the man to bear his image by working and keeping all that God grants to him. And then we looked at last week, the creation of woman and her purpose. And we saw there that God 
looked at Adam and said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to create a helper fit for him, or as the King James says it, a help meet, right? Is maybe the word you've heard through the years. And so God created a helper fit for Adam. Now, this helper was to bear the image of God by nourishing and cherishing all that God grants to her. And so we see uh, more today, or in the sermon today, we're going to see more about how the man and the woman come together under uh, this covenant of marriage. It's an institution, a pre-fall um, institution in command from the Lord. The only other one we have is to keep the Sabbath, to rest, right? We have that one instituted as well. And so uh, you might say that the Sabbath was given to us for the preservation of the church, that we would worship God on the Sabbath, that we would seek uh, the Lord on the Sabbath, that we would spend our day uh, praising God on the Sabbath. It would be a break from work and a time to come together with God's people. So it's for the preservation of the church. Marriage is instituted for, um, the, the way I want to word it for you today is this, is that God created marriage for the godly progression of the man and the woman and the godly preservation of societies. Marriage is instituted for the health, the maturation, the growth of the man and the woman, but it's also instituted for the preservation of societies. It's, you know, God created the man and the woman, then he gave them a command. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. All right, subdue the earth, exercise dominion. So it was for the, the preservation of societies. But it, I think what we'll see too, especially as the series goes on, you'll see that God intends for marriage to be one of the great sanctifying efforts of the Spirit in your life. And all the husbands and wives said, amen. Right? Because it is. And sometimes that's in heartache. Sometimes that's in hardship. Sometimes that's in difficulty or strife among the man and the woman. But in most cases, it's through the help of one another. It's through the coming alongside, being near to each other, um, the man working and keeping, the woman nourishing and cherishing, and all of that together being fruitful and multiplying. Amen? So, uh, God created marriage for the godly progression of the man and woman and the godly preservation of society. Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to read Genesis 2, 21 through 25. We're going to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. When I'm finished, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will reply, thanks be to God. Let's read. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the uh, sorry, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear it, to believe it. Lord, help us today to have hearts that are quick to obey you, uh, that are quick to repent of our sins, and eager, Lord, 
uh, to abide in Christ this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word does not go out and return void, but that it goes out and it bears much fruit. And so we ask that you would prepare our hearts by your spirit to be good soil, that the, Lord, uh, that the word of the Lord would land on our heart today and that it would bear fruit, um, fruit that multiplies. Lord, we thank you for the institution of marriage. We thank you, Lord, that despite any efforts by man to destroy it, it will last, it will stand, and it will prove always to be the God-ordained way for societies to flourish. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. I am struggling with some drainage this morning. All right. So over the last 50 years, the marriage rate in the U.S. has dropped nearly 60%. It means nearly 60% less adults are getting married now than they were 50 years ago. This is a problem. There was another staggering thing I saw as well, that the number of women, women entering their first marriage between the ages of 40 to 59, first marriage after 40, has jumped 75% since 1990. Now, before you read that or hear that, rather, as an indictment on women, I think it's an indictment on men, most. One secular sociologist quipped, it used to be a basic institution, he says, that everyone had to buy into in early adulthood, talking about marriage. You got married, then you moved in together, and then you got a job. Marriage is now becoming the last step into adulthood. The last step into adulthood. Wow. Well, if you ask that sociologist what's to blame, he said that it's due to a reduction in tax benefits. And there's some other legal structures he mentioned, but ultimately it's about the laws of the land. That's why there's a reduction in marriage. He also mentioned that the societal pressure to get married is eroding. I agree with that. I will say that about what he said, that this is like diagnosing and treating a brain tumor as simply a headache. Uh, it's, it's really, all he's doing is looking at the fruit of what, which is typically what sociologists do. They're just looking at the study of humanity and what's come from it. What, what can we observe about it without really diagnosing the issues or the problems? They leave that up to psychologists, uh, which is another problem. But this is not a sermon about those things. So, But the issue is, is that this is like scratching the surface to, to see what the problem below might be without really doing any digging into what it might be, right? It's just, well, it's tax benefits. It's the laws of the land, right? They, they've changed, and so marriage has changed. So I would ask you, you know, to consider what's changed in the last 50 years, if we want to ask these questions, like we want to observe these things, we need to know, right? We need to understand what's taken place 
in the last 50 years. Now, a whole lot has happened in the last 50 years, right? Inception of the internet, the uh, cell phones you now carry, uh, you know, a very powerful computer in your pocket everywhere you go. I mean, those are some technological advances. We, we've seen what the world causes relationship advances too, although I would say they're not advances at all. They're the degradation of relationship. It's degrading. So we had within the last, within post-World War II anyway, probably a little longer than 50 years now since we're in the 2020s, um, you had the rise of feminism, which we dealt with a little bit last week. But post-World War II, rise of feminism. I think that helped to lead into, I'm not saying it's the cause of it, but there's been a grotesque sexualization of society. Because of those computers in your pocket, the ease and the ease of access and then the subsequent addiction to things like pornography has risen incredibly quickly. The, the rise of pornography has led to uh, men who are enslaved by pixels on a screen rather than committed to a wife in front of them. And so that brings on the rise of things like adultery, fornication, the inception of no-fault divorces, the celebration of sexual perversion within the legalization of what I think we should call gay mirage, not gay marriage, in 2015. That has set us on a self-destruction course at light speed, really, and so much more. But all of this has led to a low view of marriage, and that's really what we're dealing with today. It's led to a low view of marriage and, and a low view of the necessity of men and women to mature and for societies to flourish. It's, it's godless, and it's one of the great works of Satan in our day, these things, the, the destruction of marriage. So the question then comes down to us as Christians, what must we do? What, what, are, what are the responses to this? How do we live? How do we respond? How do we act? How do, what do we say? What do we believe? And this matters a great deal for society. You know that, right? You can, you can feel the pressure of such things. Well, I think first, just like we talked about in week one, how we must recover a high view of male and femaleness, we must also recover a high view of marriage. How has God created marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? And so I don't look into the darkness and, and see this dimness and, you know, at times it feels like there's no light at all. I, I, I don't think we look into that and we, we become a people with no hope. I don't think we look into it and we begin to think, my goodness, there's no answer to this. I don't think we look into it and we think that there's nothing we can do either. I, I think that as Christians, what we ought to understand, I mean, we, if you're in home groups with us, just two weeks ago, we were studying how Christ is the light and the light has come into the world. 
So the world's always been dark is what I'm saying, but the hope of Christ is the light, right? And so there, there is light. And I think that the fact that the, the darkness seems to be gaining ground is all the more reason for, for hope because light shines brightest in the darkness, right? The, uh, the reformers back in the 1500s had a, a phrase they used, post-tenebrous lux. It was after darkness comes light. They believed that they were living in a very dark time as well, but celebrated that by saying that after darkness comes light. And I, I think we live in the same, we need a reformation of marriage. We need a reformation of relationships in our societies. Yes, even in the church. And so, again, I'm laying before you today that God has created marriage for the godly progression of the man and woman and the godly preservation of societies. Evangelicals across the West have begun to soften their message on marriage over the last two decades or so. You see, there's never a shortage. You can see it in the New Testament. There's never a shortage of self-proclaimed or even at times affirmed teachers of God's word who will not or who will, sorry, change their perspective or their stance when the winds blow the right way. There's no shortage of that even in the New Testament. And so it shouldn't shock us that today among our own ranks have gone out those who seek to change the message on marriage because the world likes a different message now and their purpose is to gain a great following and to make more money. Just follow the dollars always. And so they'll make apologies for what Scripture says about marriage. Well, that's, you know, God's commands about homosexuality are only in the Old Testament. Well, that's not true, but even if it were, it's still God's commands. Just because it was in the Old Testament doesn't, it doesn't abolish it. Christ said as much. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Christians have made apologies for the God-ordained roles of man and woman in the home and in the church and in society. You know, that, that that was a different way back then. Well, the problem is, is in much in those arguments, it's tied to creation. God created the man and the woman, and we come back to that always. That was Paul's reasoning in 1 Timothy 2, as he says that the church should not have women pastors. This is not how God has ordered his church. doesn't mean that women can't teach. doesn't mean that they can't... Uh, they're called in Titus 2 to teach other women. Older women are to train younger women to be lovers of husbands and children and to take care of their homes and to be self-controlled and respectable. And there's a whole list there of what older women are to train younger women in. And so there is teaching that goes on. And so... We, we must not ever stoop so low as to think that softening God's word, as if we're more knowledgeable than he is, or more wise than he is, or if we think that his, his book is a bit outdated and so it needs some updating, right? We can't 
stoop so low as to think that if we'll do that, we'll gain more followers. Now, maybe you will gain more followers, but what's the issue there? Those followers are not drawn to what the God, they're not drawn to the God of the Bible, nor are they drawn to what the God of the Bible has instructed us to do. Rather, they're drawn to the teachings of a man who has deemed the Bible and the God of the Bible unfit for teaching. They've made gods of themselves and for themselves. Again, we see this in the New Testament. Solomon really was right in writing Ecclesiastes when he said there is nothing new under the sun. Even evils repeat themselves. The devil may be cunning, but he's not real creative. It's the same thing always. And so I think we have to work on, now that we've, we're sobered a bit here, I think we have to work on recovering a high view of marriage, a, a Godward view of marriage. What does marriage exist for? And so as we do that, I want you to remember in the text that we've read, this is after the man was asked to help God, right? God gave him a task. He told him to name all of the creatures which he had created. And it says that all of the creatures that God brought before him and whatever Adam called them, that was its name. And then at the end of that, it was it said there that Adam did not find a helper fit for himself. He was alone. God helped him come to this realization. God knew it already because before you read any of that, it says God looked at the man and saw that he was alone and said, this is not good. And then in chapter 1, we read that after God created the man and the woman, he called it very good. So there was a moment in that where God looks and says, this isn't good, right? And he wants the man to understand this. And so as we look at marriage from creation, God has given the man a purpose. His purpose is to work and keep. And so he's working and keeping in this moment by naming the animals. And he finds out that it's not good for him to be alone. So it's not good for him to even work and keep alone. Working and keeping should involve the help of another, namely a wife. He needs a helper fit for him. He needs a wife who will nourish and cherish all that God gives to them, right? He, he works it and keep it, keeps it, she nourishes and cherishes it. We used the example last week that the man may be in the field plowing and planting and harvesting, but he brings the goods into the, to his wife, who then prepares those raw materials into food and keeps a home and a table, right? Feeds children. Instructs them on how to, to eat or to cook and eat and take care of a home, right? So they, they work and keep together. They nourish and cherish together. These things work side by side. And so look at verses 21 through 23 again. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So you got to imagine the scene with me just a little bit. It's not good for you to be alone, Adam. Adam gets to the end of this. He sees that he's alone. 
He feels the weight of that. There's not a helper fit for him, and so God causes him to sleep. One of the things that's worth pointing out there is as you trust in the Lord, you can rest as he brings provision. (laughs) Right? That can apply to anything, but especially to praying for a spouse, men, trusting the Lord to provide a wife for you. Ladies, trusting the Lord to provide a husband for you. God creates the woman from the rib of the man. He closes up the flesh. And then what does he do? Well, it says that he brought her to the man. And I don't know how the scene actually played out, but I'll I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like when a father walks his daughter down the aisle. It says the, the, the Lord God brought her to the man. He ushers her into him, and it's like a father walking his daughter down the aisle. The Lord God brings this woman to the man. And I can can remember that day in my life where Patricia's dad brought her to me. There's a real blessing in that, right? A, A father is entrusting one of his, maybe the most prized possessions, the most prized thing in his life, his daughter, to you. And here we see that you must trust the Lord in this way. So are you single? If so, are you praying? Are you preparing yourself for marriage by living a godly, upright life now? You know, are you asking God for something you're not yet fit to to take on? Matthew Henry said this, he said, Those are likely to settle to their comfort meaning they're married, they marry to their comfort, who by faith and prayer and a humble dependence upon providence put themselves under a divine conduct. That wife, he goes on, that is of God's making by special grace and of God's bringing by special providence is likely to prove a helpmeet for a man. Amen. Amen. And then if you're married already, you can, you can settle your comfort in marriage by faith and prayer still. You don't get to outgrow faith and prayer. It's trusting, depending upon the Lord, and praying for his help, his guidance in in your marriage. That trust, that faith and prayer informs then your works and your words within your marriage. Right? It's, it's part of God's work in maturing you by his spirit. As you depend on Christ, Christ helps you by his spirit. As you trust in Christ for the help of your spouse, Christ helps your spouse by his spirit and maybe even through you. We'll talk a bit more in a moment on what it looks like for God to use marriages in this way to sanctify us. But for now, we must see the gracious generosity of God who created all things, including marriage, right? The man gains a helpmeet. The woman gains a a husband who is to be her head. And we talked again, she was created from the side of man, not from his head. 
uh, that she would be over him and not from his feet, that she would be trampled on him, but from his side, uh, that they would be near to one another and walking together in marriage. And so I ask you in the text, is he thrilled by God's generosity or is he a little sad about it? Well, he's thrilled. He's thrilled. He, he speaks in poetic terms like only a rough, gruff man can speak in poetic terms, right? I mean, it's this at last is bone of my bones. I tried that on Patricia once. I didn't get an, oh, how sweet. It's just, huh? This is flesh of my flesh. Oh, babe, you're so kind. No, not at all, right? Like, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That was an old joke. It's really kind of crass. So I'll just, I want to correct it this way. God, Adam did not name the woman woman because he said, whoa, man, when he first saw her. All right. It's, it's far deeper than outward attraction. It's far deeper than that. He, he declares the power of their union. He declares the, with, great, with the greatest intimacy he can muster, he, he declares in poetic terms, no less, what it means for him to have gained a helpmeet, one who is like him in nature. She is human. We read in the New Testament that man was made in the image of God and woman was made in the image of man. That, that both were made in the image of God in that way. And so what he's saying is, is this at last is bone of my bones. This is last is flesh of my flesh he had just gone through all the other creatures on the earth right and did not find one who was like him i don't know how many that was at creation you know i'm sure we've gotten many different kinds over the years but he named every animal every creature flew on the earth uh, above the earth every creature and beast that roamed the earth and he names them all, and he finds that there's not one fit for him. So what does he do now that he finds one who's fit for him? Well, he names her. He says, she shall be called woman, which in the, in the Hebrew is Isha. And the reason that's important is because in the Hebrew, man is Ish. So you see the intimacy at play here. You see what's going on. He is restating his own name in her name, declaring the greatest intimacy possible. I mean, they, these two were literally, God intends for them to become one flesh in this marriage union, right? But he's literally stating right out of the gate, we are one. This is my why. I think it's beautiful. That doesn't sound like it when you read Bone of My Bones and Flesh of My Flesh. It's kind of like, oh no, it kind of sounds Halloweenish, you know? But it's, it's deeper than that. He's rejoicing in what God has done, which is the good and right response, right? When a, when a man gets married, he should rejoice. When we receive good gifts from the Lord, should we not rejoice? 
we rejoice in the Lord always, right? And so God's, uh, Matthew Henry says that God's gifts to us are to be received with a humble, thankful acknowledgement of his wisdom and suiting them to us in his favor and bestowing them on us. So we receive it with thankfulness. That why in the world would God give such an amazing gift to me? This is pre-fall Adam saying this. How much more can sinful Adam say this? Sinful sons and daughters of Adam and Eve as we are. But God created marriage for the godly progression of the man and woman and the godly preservation of societies. He brings them together for this purpose, to be fruitful and multiply, as you see in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that rules and moves on earth, sorry, that moves on the earth. All of those creatures you just named, Adam, you and your wife are to go and exercise dominion over them. You are my vice regents on the earth. You do uh, you lord over them in my stead. I'm your lord, you're their lord. Right? But you do it together. You rule together. And we see this as the two become one flesh. In verse 24, here we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so this is what I mean by marriage is meant to preserve societies. The man and the woman come from who? I mean, here they're coming from God, but every man and woman after that come from who? Their mother and father, right? You, men, you have a mother and a father. Now, whether or not they were good or not, that's, we're not discussing those things yet, right? We're just saying you have a mother and father and who, of whom you come from, and ladies, you do as well. And so here we read, that they leave mother and father. The man leaves his mother and father. He leaves his home. He leaves his kindred. And he joins. He holds fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So the man and the woman leave father and mother. Hold fast to one another. Which perpetuates and preserves societies in godly fruitfulness. To become one flesh means the marriage was to be consummated. It's the reason you shouldn't live a life of fornication. You become one flesh with everyone you sleep with. And so a piece of you is, is a part of them. This is, this is why fornication leads to the degradation of societies. It, and I'm not going to travel so far down that road as to say that God doesn't heal and that God can't restore or redeem. Absolutely, he does in Christ Jesus. All of our sins forgiven. Healed of all of those things. Amen? And we're, we praise God for that. But it's why bragging about things like body counts is utterly stupid. It's foolish. 
And, and it's not doing anything for you. In fact, it's destroying you. So, so we must be smart here and understand that, you know, as a, as a man becomes more hard after years of pornography abuse, years of fornication, as his heart becomes hard and as he decides that marriage is not for me, that is not a blessing of God. That's a, that's a hardening of his heart towards the things of God because of his sinfulness. And this is why marriage rates are on the decline. At least one reason. Again, I submit that there's many, but this is one sober reason why. Men, you're called to leave mother and father and to be joined to your wife, not to be joined to pixels on the screen or to many women, but to your wife in a lifelong monogamous relationship lived unto God Almighty. And this is where you'll find the blessing of God. This is where you'll find true joy and true happiness that lasts a lifetime. It's in the hard work of building a home with your wife. It's worth every effort. You can see how great the bond here is because they're called to leave mother and father and be joined to their wife, right? The, the two are called to leave what is natural to them and to be joined to something which is supernatural and acted upon them by God through the two becoming one flesh. I mean, naturally, to whom can you be more firmly bound together with than your fathers and your mothers who brought you into this world? Yet you must leave them to be joined to your wife. The daughter must forget them to be joined to her husband. Scripture elsewhere, the reason we know we're not supposed to take multiple wives is because Scripture elsewhere makes that explicit. See how firm the bond of marriage is here. It's not to be divided or weakened. Christ goes on to say that. As he expounds upon this text later in the Gospels, he's being asked about marriage and the difficulty of it and, and the likes. He, he, says that, have, he says, have you not read that the man shall leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, Christ adds, let not man separate. So this marriage union is not to be divided or weakened or broken. You can see how dear the affection here is between the couple. Right, that they would leave mother and father and be joined to their husband or their wife. Such as they become, two, two fleshes become one flesh. And so then they are, they act as though they are one soul even. They're that near to one another. That close to one another. You know, there's so many naysayers about marriage that it really is disheartening. 
it's disheartening for a young couple. Like every, and I can remember this being the case for me. I worked in an office on my way to marriage. I was engaged to be married in just a couple of months and took a job in an office working alongside, I think there was one other male in the office and a bunch of other ladies. And I just remember how awful marriage was talked about. It was, even from women, it was like, don't do it. You know, it's terrible. You know, the first year is the hardest. Watch out for the seven-year itch. Like, it's all these different warnings. And like, my gosh, who wants to be married? And then ultimately, I would just go back to Patricia and have conversations with her. And I would think, praise God, I'm not married to one of those women. Right? I'm, I'm marrying this woman. This is different. And so you have kind of about you a holy rebellion, right? It's a, it's a rebelling against what society thinks is good and right. To live unto the, the thing that God calls holy. But I remember those days well. And I remember now even like, as you do marriage counseling with young couples, they hear much of the same thing. Like this, this is perpetuated. This is how we're discipling people to think about marriage. And oftentimes it comes from people who are Christians. This is terrible. This is not how we perpetuate societies. This is how we got into the mess we're in now as Christians beginning to say marriage ain't worth it. Yes, it is. It's good and right. Said so by God. It was it was ordained before, it was ordained at the beginning of world history. In fact, it's how world history was to come about, was a married man and woman carrying out the acts of God in society. Right? Building homes and helping those homes be fruitful and multiply, and then so on and so forth. And so Patricia and I will be married in, for 15 years in, on December 6th of this year. Four children, gone through the death of a child together. We've gone through heartaches. Early in marriage, dealing with, with my failures and handling pornography. Meeting uh, the pains of that on her face and in her voice, and then receiving grace that only the Lord could supply. It has a way to strengthen a man, is what I'm saying. This, this is what God means when... When you're given a help meet at the beginning of creation, it's easy to think, well, this was pre-fall world. How hard could it be? But the problem was is marriage doesn't end in Genesis 3 when the fall happens. In fact, they're still to go and be married and to be fruitful and multiply. We still get those same commands through the scriptures. So you have to learn now in a post-fall world, how are we going to be fruitful and multiply? How are we going to live for the Lord? How are we going to submit ourselves to his rule and to his government of our lives? for the good of our children and for the good of churches and for the good of societies and nations, right? Like, you have to ask the question at the heart level, what do I need to change? How might the Lord rule my heart as a husband or as a wife? Where am I missing the mark? How can I submit to him, right? There's all these different questions you can come to with the scriptures, and the Lord wants to answer your questions. He wants to help you live as a man who loves the Lord with a wife who loves the Lord, so that you raise children who love the Lord. Happy the home when God is there. God wants to be in your home. 
and he commands you to make him Lord of your home. And so if you resist the Lord and don't make him Lord of your home, well, then you're not going to incur the blessings of God. It's amazing to me how many, how many of us will pray for God to bless in some way as we're actively living in disobedience to God. It's quite an arrogance to think that the blessings I need or the things I need him to answer, the circumstances I need him to change, are they not possibly a result of my disobedience? Are they not possibly God's way of chastising those children whom he loves dearly, as Hebrews tells us? Yeah, it's possible they are. And so we must submit ourselves to him. Right? And that, that requires a helpmeet, men. Ladies, that requires a husband who loves the Lord. And for you to follow such a man. God created marriages for the godly progression of the man and the woman. You leave mother and father, you're joined to your wife. You leave mother and father, you're joined to your husband. God intends for that relationship to mature you in many of the same way, well, in many ways that build upon how you were matured as a son or a daughter. Does that make sense? I kind of confused my wording there. So as you leave mother and father, that relationship that you were discipled in and brought up in and hopefully brought up to love the Lord in, you're now joined to your husband or your wife for further discipleship, for further growth and sanctification in Christ's likeness. And that's going to come as you endure hardships. It's going to incur, uh, come as your spouse sins against you or you sin against your spouse and these things are brought up and now you have to deal with them. It's going to come in all sorts of ways, but God is going to bless your home as you submit yourself to him and seek him. I promise you this. Not because my promise is any good, but because the Lord has promised this. It's a, it's a weird, the next verse is weird, right? N naked and unashamed. But what I'm telling you is this is describing life in marriage pre-fall. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And we get in Genesis 3, after the fall, that they were naked and ashamed, and so they covered themselves. It wasn't that they learned they were naked. It was that they sinned and realized their sinfulness. But what we have here is an evidence of the purity and the innocency of, of that s the, the state that Adam and Eve in their marriage existed in, in which they were created to live in. They were naked. They didn't need clothes for defense against cold or heat. Nothing could injure them. They didn't need it for ornament, right? They weren't trying to dress up, make themselves look pretty. They were naked and had no reason to be ashamed. They, they knew, they didn't even know what shame was. That's the beauty of it. Now when we, we, Matthew Henry says that when we blush now, it's the product of virtue. It's the color of virtue, he calls it. 
It's an understanding that that's shameful and we shouldn't do that. So we, we blush. But it was not the color of innocency. He said they, did, they didn't know blushing. Those that had no sin in their conscience might well have no shame in their faces, he says, though they had no clothes to their backs. And so it's a, it's a hard text to preach in the company of children. Because there's, there is a great restore, there's a restorative nature about godly marriage that gets you to a place where you can exist naked and be unashamed with someone again. So, so here's what I mean. If, if you all knew every sin that I dealt with, if you knew everything that crossed my mind, if you knew every heart issue that I possess, I have no doubt some of you think I'm awful, right? But I'm just kidding. But, but I'm more awful than you can imagine. And that's not like some pietistic saying. Like, that's true. I recognize that about my own heart, that I'm more sinful even than I realize. But you can exist in marriage, in a godly marriage, there's a restorative nature to where you can exist in all your sinfulness, naked, right, before your wife, in the sense of everything is born before her, in your heart, your mind, and you, you can live, not, you can live unshamed. She's not going to shame you. I'm not saying you won't be unashamed for your sinfulness. Sure you will. That's conscience. That's God's work in your life to get you back on track and to help you see true north and to repent and believe, right? But what I'm saying is, is that you can exist as your marriages grow. You can come to this place where you are glad to be with your wife and for her to know all of your wrongs and your faults and your failures, and she's not lording them over you. And the vice versa is true. You're not lording them over her. But you're washing one another with the word, as Christ says, in, or as God instructs us through Ephesians 5. And so there's a sanctifying effect, a deep, incredible, sanctifying effect to marriage, Christian marriage. And this is why I say we've got to have a high view of Christian marriage. We, we've got to restore this view of Christian marriage. We've got to have God change our minds about marriage if we think that marriage is not useful, that marriage should not be pursued, or any of those kinds of things, because God wants to use marriage most often. There are cases of singleness and celibacy and the like. But they're fringe accounts in Scripture. Most often, God wants to use marriages to bring you to a place where you can be naked and unashamed again. He's going to sanctify you through your marriage. It is one of the great benefits of sexual intercourse. It really is. And I won't go any further than that because of the, the nature of the congregation this morning, but that's a part of what God's doing to restore being naked and unashamed, to bless marriages, to, to bring them together that they would two fleshes become one flesh. And we ought to praise God for this. And this is why the marriage bed should be undefiled. 
This is why you should save yourself for marriage. This is why you should commit your sexual engagement to your spouse only forever. And if unmarried, to your future spouse. Because God has created marriage for the godly progression, the maturation of your soul, and for the preservation of societies. And then Paul, examining this mystery in Ephesians 5, which we'll preach at another date, but has to be mentioned here, Paul's looking at the mystery of marriage, this mystery of a man leaving his mother and father, being joined to his wife, and he says, essentially, that the mystery of the marriage union from creation reveals the union of Christ and the church in the new creation. As we become, in the fall, you become a sinner. You are bound to sin. And when Christ saves you, as we see in the New Testament, you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. You're now able to put off the old man to put on the new man. You're able to live in a way that honors the Lord, right? Once you freely chose sin, now you can freely choose to live for the Lord because your, your will is not bound to sinfulness anymore. Paul's saying that, that all of this that we see in marriage reveals to us the relationship of Christ and the church. He says in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's just quoting Genesis 2, 24 there. Verbatim. Word for word. And then in 32, he says, This mystery is profound. So, so marriage is a mystery, was a mystery, and now he's saying it's being revealed. He's saying, I'm saying this refers to Christ and the church. And so born-again believers, you have been united fully to Christ Jesus. He is the head, you are his body. We are one with him by the power of the Spirit within us. The same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead, now lives in us to raise us to new life in Christ. Amen? And Paul is saying the mystery of marriage, the fact that a man leaves his father and mother, he's joined to his wife in this way, and the two become one flesh. And that's kind of the mystery, right? It's like, how do they become one flesh? Paul is saying that that reveals Christ in the church. That as, a, as, a, as a man and woman, albeit imperfectly, dwell together in the union of marriage, it reveals to others Christ and his love for his bride, the church. And we'll get into more of that in the weeks to come, but I want to leave you with that. And so this is my call to you today in that. Because if you feel the weight of any of the sins we've named today, and the Lord is acting on you now by his spirit through conviction. You need to repent today. You need to commit yourself to Christ Jesus. You need to make him Lord of your life if you've never done that before. You need to trust him fully for the forgiveness of your sins. 
he is he is kind enough to forgive he is loving enough to erase the effects of sin on your life and so i i beg of you to submit yourself to him if you never have if you're here today and you say well i am a believer but i I'm bound by some of these things you've mentioned. My marriage isn't happy. We struggle. We're having issues. We're going through it. You don't understand, right? Like any of those kinds of things. The Lord is acting on you now as well to repent and to believe and to trust in him. And so I ask you to commit your life to Christ in that way. To trust him. God created marriage for the godly progression of the man and the woman and for the preservation of societies. We're going to see more of that as we go through this series. But today we must respond in obedience. And so uh, let me pray for you, and then I'm going to give you a few moments just with some, uh, I think the team will play instrumentally during that, but just a moment for you to pray and to seek the Lord as well for you to deal with whatever the Lord's laying on your heart this morning. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for the love that you've shown us in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to believe in him and to trust him today. And so, Lord, in whatever ways you're moving by your spirit on your people today, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to obey you to repent and to believe today, to trust you in whatever ways they need to. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you love us. Help us to recover a high view of marriage, especially our own marriages or the pursuit of our own marriages. Help us to do that hard work of believing in you and trusting you and prayerfully depending upon you and then acting in faith in what we say and in what we do so that our homes might be fruitful places for your kingdom. Lord, we love you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.